Three, two, we're live. Here we go. All right. The Hunt for Success podcast number 17. It's uh, December, early December, and uh, got kind of an announcement to make. Uh, we're going to go on a short hiatus after this episode, and we're going to uh, do some rebranding. The, the Hunt for Success uh, started out as just something fun for us to do and to uh, kind of combine a few different things that we enjoy. And really starting to take off, get a lot of, we're getting a lot of traction. We got some really cool people lined up for 2018. So we're going to uh, take about a four-week hiatus, work on our production and our branding, and come back uh, uh, for season two in 2018. So joining us today, Paul Barak. Um, hey. We met in a bar. Uh, we were uh, doing two different things that day. Yeah. You were in the middle of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And we were uh, having a beer before going to see Wheeler Walker Jr. You, I bet, we were going to have more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, uh, I came back that day and I'd, uh, I was hanging uh, in town with my friend Paul. And I get back and he's like, hey, man, we're going to have some uh, company over. And I'm like, cool. And then there was a pause. And he's like, you need to shower again. <laughs> and I was like, but I smell trail good. He's like, you smelled city horrible, man. So <laughs> did you shower. shower before the bar then? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. I, I showered. Anytime I was in the city, I'd shower like five times if I could. Well, it was funny because uh, it was a packed bar because uh, the UFC fight was on that That's night. That's right, yeah. And uh, it was standing room only, and I saw that you guys had just paid your bill. Mm-hmm. I went with my wife, and I'm like, let's go hover over these people and take their <laughs> seats as soon as they're done. And I can't remember who you were with, but they left. And uh, you had yes. paid your bill. And I'm like, is this guy going to sit here all night? When do we get his seat? And then uh, and then you, I think you saw me standing behind you. You're like, oh, give me just a second. Let me finish posting this stuff on Instagram. And I'll leave. I said, no rush, no big deal. Um, and then I'm like, well, what are you posting? And then that's when we started talking about uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, which... It's kind of weird how on the podcast uh, we've kind of got a connection with different people that are hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, So before we dive into that, um, I'm going to bring something back to the show that we haven't done in a while. I'm going to try to summarize some things that I think you are. Okay. And then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong and what I missed. All right. Let's do it. Uh, Author. Yep. Uh, Stand-up comedian. Uh, No longer. No longer. Former. Former, yeah. Why former? Uh, turns out grief is a lot harder to deal with than you expect. And uh, stand-up comedy was something that just had to kind of fall away so I could, you know, kind of reheal. Same thing with going on the PCT. So how? So you were going through some sort of grief and the, the, com- the comedy, you couldn't, it was hard to manage both? Or explain that a little more. Tell me. Okay, so in... Uh, October 2015, um, my girlfriend committed suicide, and we were both stand- we both did stand-up comedy in Seattle. And uh, after that, I kind of left for Denver. And I was I went to Denver for a number of reasons, but one of them was to try doing stand-up comedy in a new scene. And you know, I did it for a couple of months, and I was starting to gain a little bit of traction. You know, still a long way to go. And then I was just sitting in a bar one night looking at the stage, listening to people talk about comedy, I was like, you know, I'm not going to talk about anything I want to up there. 
And that was like kind of the first time doing stand up where I was like, I'm going to have to lie and be someone I'm not because otherwise I'm just going to bring everyone down. And then I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I really just don't want to spend this time of my life pretending I want to do, I want to actually work through this stuff. So I refocused on writing and then just kind of gave it up and I don't miss it. Like I'll do, I'm going to do a friend's show in December, but other than that, I just really have been using my time a lot better. So when you do your friend show, are you going to use material you had written for when you were doing stand up? Yeah. It'd be nothing new. I mean, I'll do a couple of things that, you know, came up while I was in Denver. But, mm-hmm. yeah, for the most part, I'm just, I kind of like writing better. I feel like stand-up comedy, especially at the amateur level, is just such a time and money suck that I just didn't really want to commit to it anymore if I wasn't, like, 100% gung-ho anymore. And how long had you done stand-up up to that Five point? Five years. And... <clears throat> um, you were doing it at the amateur level, so were you touring around? I mean, you know, did some did some shows in uh, California, San Francisco. Uh, did a comedy festival in the Redwoods. Um, yeah, you know, not really, not really much of a touring. I don't know if I was that good. <laughs> <laughs> so to back you up, you were in the process of. Well. Uh, Oh yeah, before we, before I got depressing. Yeah, no, uh, no, I knew. I, comic. I knew where I was at. I, 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 I knew. I, I, had to, I had to bring you back real quick. Uh, <clears throat> it just it's it's fascinating to me um, when people decide to decide that they're not in their lane. Yeah. Right. That uh, you had dumped five years into this, and it, was it? It's like American Idol where somebody should have told those people a long time ago they weren't good? Is that kind of how you felt? or? Uh, no, I mean, I was. I think I was Seattle good. <laughs> You're Seattle <laughs> I think, like, nationally, I, like, you know, I would go to bar shows and some of my bits would hit and some of my bits were too Seattle. Um, what does that mean? Uh, too, like, quote-unquote smart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think just in the end, it, you know, it was, I definitely saw some people who someone should have told them a while ago, like, may, maybe do something else. Do you think but, that maybe your life experiences at some point in the future will bring you back into comedy? I think I definitely will be back on stage doing something. I think I'd rather be focusing on storytelling and writing right now, because mm-hmm. uh, as much fun as comedy is, it's... It's such a time suck until you get good. It's the only thing you can do, I think. Mm-hmm. And I just, if, if you want to pursue it, if you want to actually be a paid professional comic, you need to just devote yourself to it, move to L.A. or New York, keep getting better, do that grind for 10 years, maybe more, and then maybe you'll hit your break. Uh, and, yeah, I just, I have too many, like, interests all over that comedy I felt was also taking me away from time wise. So I just kind of felt like, okay, you know what? Like I'm good cutting ties with this right now. This was a great time. I learned a lot and I think I'm a better person for having done it, but it's also starting to like 
the frustration of not getting anywhere in it and kind of there's a lot of toxicity that exists beneath the surface of any scene. And I feel like both of those were starting to just like wear on me more than they were helping me. Hmm. Well, and, uh, you know, relating this back to success, a lot of people, um, I think, miss that opportunity to decide, you know, they may stick with something too long. Mm, you know, yeah. instead of uh, uh, cutting the cutting and running um, and onto something else, putting that energy into something else, I guess would be better than cutting and running. So, uh, former stand-up comedian. Yeah. Sorry for going so long, Ryan. Um, through hiker. Yep. Uh, I've said this in my mind a million times, and I still can't pronounce it right. Uh, so it's one, Barack, but with a ch at the end. It's what? Nothing. I'm joking. Am I spelling your? Am I pronouncing your last name wrong? No, no. You pronounced my name right. It's just a lot of people pronounce it wrong. Brach. So. Yeah. Yeah. I won't call you Brach. Thank you. Uh, You're not a telemarketer. I then. did say several times Barack the Casbah is coming on, <laughs> and I got to the point. I'm like, oh wait, his name's not Barack the Casbah. It's Paul Barack. Yes. But your handle is Barack the Casbah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one. Out of 46,000, you're going to have to help me out. Neuro, what are the uh, pilgrim? Oh, Henro. Henro. I want to say Neuro. It's Henro. Yeah. So in your book, you're one out of 46,000 white Henros. Uh, no, I'm uh, one out of 46,000 every year who is white. At that time, in 2010, like, yeah, only about a dozen, uh, only about a dozen Westerners hiked the Shikoku pilgrimage at that point. And what's been interesting uh, is there's a Facebook page for Henro now, which there wasn't when I did it. And so there's a lot more uh, support and a lot more people talking about it. And it's interesting to see everyone's experience levels just in preparation just improving and increasing with uh, everyone telling other people their experiences whereas when I went like even most Japanese people were like how do you know about this like we've we barely have heard of this yeah well I didn't know what Henro was till I read your book Um, now do you have to complete the pilgrimage to be at Henro or are you um, just starting it? Can you call yourself a Henro? I think uh, starting on a starting on any pilgrimage, you can call yourself a pilgrim. I don't think you have to finish. And it doesn't have to be that pilgrimage. It could be any. Like, is the would you consider the Pacific Crest Trail a pilgrimage? Um, I think any pilgrimage depends on uh, what your intentions are going into it. So, I mean, for me, I think it was, and I'd slip up and call it the pilgrimage when I was preparing for it. But I don't know there. For, like, a through hike, it can be spiritual, and it was for me, but you need to, like, put that intention into it when you're going. Because otherwise. Both times it was spiritual? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think definitely both times. I'd say the, the Shikoku pilgrimage was harder, and I think in a, in a lot of ways less spiritually fulfilling at the time. Like, yeah, it was... Because there's no temples on the Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah, but it was easier. So I was able to actually, like, absorb... I was able to absorb more of the experience as it was happening, whereas uh, on the Shikoku pilgrimage in my book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, available on Amazon, (laughs) (laughs) uh, 
on the Chicago pilgrimage, it, so much of it was the search for meaning and the search for uh, the search for insight through suffering that I was going through. And you know, it was, uh, for example, on the the Shigoku pilgrimage is split into four sections: the land of awakening faith, the land of ascetic training, the land of enlightenment, and the land of nirvana. And when I was hiking through the longest section, the land of ascetic training, like it was hot, it was boring, I was alone, my feet hurt with every step, and it was a matter for me of having to find that meaning in just it being awful because if you don't find the meaning in it you're just enduring and so for me it was okay well what meaning can I find in this like pain that I'm in and for me it was okay every temple you go to your dedications are the prayers the name slips some money and that's it but what I'm going to give to every temple is all of this pain that I'm in right now that is what I'm devoting to it, and I hope I'll get something back. And a lot of what I got from Shikoku kind of happened in hindsight, whereas with the PCT, because I'd had the experience of being on a pilgrimage and had the experience of a through-hike and a lot of other stuff in between, I was able to really be more in the moment because I wasn't figuring out how to do it as I was going. Well, you talk about that in your book on the... Um can you pronounce that for me? Shikoku Pilgrimage. Shikoku Pilgrimage. Uh, you talk about how you wish that you had, you weren't a beginner. Yeah. Um, that you didn't have to learn as you went, that, that you could enjoy it more if you weren't struggling on the learning part. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. Because for me, learning on the learning would be part of it. Like, you wouldn't want to fast forward to uh, being an expert. Like, is it part, like you talked about, uh, being in karate, being yeah. a white belt, and not knowing um, all the advanced moves, and even if you would get a strike, it would only be followed by an uppercut. Yeah, you know. Uh, but isn't isn't the journey of learning all that part of it? So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's also because in, like, I was focused on the journey, but I also, and for a lot of the Shikoku pilgrimage, was like, okay. What's the big lesson I'm going to learn? Can I just fast forward? Because that's cinematically how this works. You know, this is the hero's journey. And you have these arcs. And then, you know, the ending. And then we all come back to the Shire and drink mead. And <laughs> instead, it was just like, God, this sucks. This sucks and I'm bored. Do you think it was tougher just obviously being in a foreign country, not being able to speak the languages and whatnot? Yes. Every other trip I've taken past that, I've been like, thank God I, people speak the same language Ichiro. I do. Ichiro Suzuki, Siatori Marina. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we dive into that, I can already tell we got to go back and finish our original thought here. Sure. So uh, through hiker, uh, say it again. Shikoku pilgrimage. Uh, but Henro. The, Henro. Yeah. Uh, what else? What am I leaving out? Um, black belt in karate. Um, what else? Uh, marathon runner, uh, bicycled across the United States, uh, taught English in South Korea. Um, college graduate? College graduate. Boom. Yeah. That was, uh, I think that was the least impressive thing I did. <laughs> so, 
Um, you can sleepwalk through college, I found out. Yeah, so I knew very. I, I knew a couple of those. What, um, people sleepwalking through college? No, a, a, couple of <laughs> your, a couple of the things that you are. Um, so let's just dive into one thing here. Uh, sure. So Ryan and I just got back from a workshop uh, uh, with uh, High Trust Selling. It's uh, ran by uh, a guy named Todd Duncan. And uh, you know, this whole podcast is about success mm-hmm. and uh, success in different areas and different versions. And you know, we've had minimalists on the show and we've had multi-billion dollar executives on the show. Um, but one question we like to ask is what a success, what's your definition of success? But after going through this workshop, I think a more interesting, uh, question is, um, what does your success mean to you? What's important about success to you? Because you just told me you did all these crazy things, rode a, rode a bike across the country. You've done the pilgrimage in Japan and the Pacific Crest Trail here. Uh, black belt. I mean, these are out of the box successes, right? Yeah. So, what about those successes is important to you? Uh, I think what's important to me about them is just that, like, for a lot of my life, uh, especially through high school and college, I just felt very lost, and I didn't have, I didn't have any direction that I truly believed in, which I think is, was a huge problem for me in college because I went to college because I was told I should go to college. Like any direction of where you should end up professionally? No, just who, who I wanted to be. And I never really defined who I wanted to be by what profession I'd have. And so that kind of leaves you lost because no one... No one is like, who do you want to be when you grow up? Like a good person who believes in themselves. You know, a kind man who has plenty of friends. Everyone's like doctor or lawyer and all of the other like really valuable things that used to be, you know, most of what made society good uh, go by the wayside. Like uh, my girlfriend, Michelle, we were talking and she said, you know, there's Forbes, you know, 30 millionaires under 30 no one has a forbes 30 just good decent people under Mm -hmm. 30 yeah no one measures success by being okay with yourself and not being scared and so when i was 24 i was in uh i was having a phone call with my dad like normal you know him being like you know he just you just got to pick something you just got to pick who you want to be at 30 you know what was your dad's career my dad and my mom are both therapists. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's like, just choose who you want to be at 30. And, you know, in his mind, it's like, rhymes with Octor or Oyer, Paul, get on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was like, yeah, you know, I do. And so I'm jogging and I was running up this hill and I was like, who do you want to be at 30? And I had this vision of myself at 30 walking down the street. And I was like, man, that dude looks okay. He looks like he knows what he's doing. What were you wearing in this image? Uh, I definitely wasn't a suit. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think I ever saw myself wearing anything but like short sleeve shirts and hoodies and pants because I really don't like, uh, I don't know. I don't, I d- again, success to me is not wearing a suit. They feel uncomfortable. So I saw that guy, and that guy had done what eventually, about a year later, became seven goals, 
that to accomplish before I turned 30. And if I could do all that, I would be that guy. So these are seven goals that you came up with. Yes. So they were run a marathon, write a book, bicycle across the United States, teach English in Asia, the Shikoku pilgrimage, uh, black belt in karate, and backpack across Europe. So <clears throat> let me stop you. Yeah. You were 24 years old? I was 24, yeah. So a 24-year-old studying to be a doctor... I was not studying to be a doctor. But but what my point is, is that I pay lots of money to go to seminars Mm -hmm. to teach me how to set goals. Mm -hmm. And we just spent four days in Las Vegas learning about goal setting and motivation and how to achieve them in life planning and business planning. So at 24 years old, you thought it would be a good idea to come up with seven goals. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. Thank you. Um, you know, just relating it to millennials now, it's like if you if you could just come up with seven goals as a 24-year-old to achieve by your time you're 30, mm-hmm. so you had six years. Mm-hmm. Go through that list again. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I always, I can never remember this, even though I've done all of them. Uh, let's see. Uh, get a black belt in karate. Bicycle. Which, let me stop you. Yes. Okay, let's hit these one by one. Yeah. How long does it take to become a black belt in karate? For Kyokushin karate, it takes five years. And at the end, you have to fight 15 people straight, no breaks, bare-fisted. Is it similar to um, Taekwondo? No. The, no. Is it, does it take longer to get a black belt in Taekwondo? No, it takes way shorter. It takes shorter. In fact, a lot of Taekwondo dojos are just kind of mick dojos. Mm-hmm. You know, they pop up, you pay for your belts. It's like daycare. Yeah. Uh, Kyokushin karate is very I'm sure focused. there's different levels, though. Cause, oh yeah, because yeah, I've I've known some guys that are that that have gone the whole Korean route and had Korean senseis and everything with the Taekwondo. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I don't know if it's serious. Yeah, it probably takes about five years five as years. well. Okay, so you got your black belt in five years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's number two? Uh, bicycle across the United States. Where'd you start and where'd you finish? I went from Seattle to San Francisco for a training ride, and then I flew out to Yorktown, Virginia. Bicycled straight across to Pueblo, Colorado, uh, then up to Whitefish, Montana, and then across to Anacortes. So coast to coast. Nice. So you flew from the east coast, or you rode from the east coast to where? To call it to uh, Anacortes, Washington. No, but where was coast. your first stop? Uh, Before east, Whitefish, so Virginia, uh, Yorktown, Virginia, to Pueblo, Colorado. So what was that ride like from Colorado? To whitefish, because that's not necessarily flat, right? Uh, way easier than Kansas. Kansas really? was a super nightmare. Windy. Super windy? Yeah, super yeah. windy. Hottest place on planet Earth at that week. Uh, just flat, though, right? Flat, but with all of the wind coming and the headwinds. It just like, kills you. Yeah. It like, kills you. If you stop pedaling, your bike stops. And so, like, if I had two miles to go to get into a town, I'd have to rest, and it would take me an hour. Wow. Put that into perspective, two miles at a regular pace, under 10 minutes, yeah. six to 10 minutes, just, yeah. just, wow. just cruising. Yeah, it was a nightmare. I, I still hate the entire state of Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> That's so pr- surprising to me because I'm like, because I've driven that Colorado mm-hmm. to Whitefish, and it's a lot of mountains. Yeah, but mountains go up and then they go down, they go down. so you can coast. I would have never thought, and I spent time, I haven't been in Kansas, but North Dakota, it's very flat. Uh, all right, so biking across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did it take you to do that? That took me 
uh, coast to coast, 57 days. That's impressive. And how old were you when you did it? So you set the goal at 24. I, I uh, was 29 and I turned 30 in Wyoming Okay. as I was bicycling. I know I'm all over the place, Paul. Yeah, no problem. Uh, did you tackle these seven? Did you prioritize them like one at a time? Or um, I mean, the karate, you know, was just all the way through, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Um, the bicycle trip was 2012 when I'd saved up enough money. The Shikoku pilgrimage was 2010 when I'd saved up the money. Um, the marathon uh, was actually one of the hardest mental blocks to get over. So uh, when did you do the marathon? I ran the marathon in 20... See, I'd gotten by, uh, 2009, I think. So this is one of the, the early goal. Like this is one of the goals you completed first. Uh, I think the the goal I completed first was backpack across Europe because I'd actually done that at 23. I can't get over these. I'm like, we're going through all these, and I forgot you said backpack across Europe. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so I think that I think I, I ran the marathon twice. I think the first one was 2009. In which marathon? Seattle Marathon. Yeah, which uh, is one of the like harder ones, at least you know, of just city marathons, because the last six miles are mostly uphill. Mm -hmm. And how did you do? Uh, I did pretty well. I uh, was running at eight and a half minute miles, and then. Uh, Two, three years later, I ran it again, and I was doing seven-and-a-half-minute miles. Wow. Which, yeah, I was impressed, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so we have uh, bicycle across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, backpack get, across Europe. Backpack across Europe. Black uh, belt. And karate. Yep. Uh, marathons. Run a marathon, yep. The pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Shikoku pilgrimage. I'm going to avoid that word, Shikoku. Okay. How do you say it? Shikoku. Shikoku. She is uh, four, and Koku is region. Oh, okay. Shikoku. Can I just call it the four region pilgrimage? Sure. You can call it the Henra pilgrimage, <laughs> or just the Japanese pilgrimage. Okay, so that's five. Yep. So what are the, what the two are missing here? This is I always PC, PC, PCT. That's uh, no. The Pacific Crest Trail wasn't on it. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, write a book, and uh, thank you. Write a book and uh, shit. What was the last one? Ugh. Backpack across Europe, run a marathon, write a book, black belt in martial arts, uh, teach English in Korea. There we That's go. That's the last one. That's a lot to cover. It was. Uh, I'm going to ask you about teaching English in Korea, but before I do that, uh, so you set these seven goals, mm -hmm. and. Were you self-accountable for these goals, or did you have mentor or accountability people helping you achieve these goals? Did you tell anybody? I told people, but they all considered it like, oh, how's your bucket list going? And I'm like, it's not a bucket list. It's about becoming a better person. God, jeez. <laughs> so in your mind, this is how you were going to become that better person, that person you saw yeah, in your mind. the person who was now. happy with himself. And, and by accomplishing these seven things, your character was going to change in a dramatic way. Yes. Did your character need to change? Were you a good person at 24? Uh, definitely not as good. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it was a young, I was a, you know, white male in his early 20s. I don't think any of us were great. No. Like, you know, there's a lot of shit you got to get over. And 
especially, like I said, there was no career direction. There was just sort of a, you should have a career. You should want to work at Microsoft. You should want to earn this money and, you know, take two-week vacations and save up for retirement. And it just never sounded right. It never sounded like, oh, that's what a human life is. And did you think by going through these seven crazy goals that you were going to figure out what you wanted to do with your life? No, I felt like going through them would be my life. Like it wasn't uh, going through the goals. The reason like bucket list annoyed me is a bucket list just seems like you're like checking stuff off because it's like, oh, well, before I die, I want to, you know, do this and this. And for me, it was like every goal I accomplish, I get better and more confident and more knowledge of how to do the next one. And it makes me, I'm learning more about how to be a person as opposed to like, you know, just, I don't know, buying in, I guess. The bucket list thing is about accomplishing fun things, right? There's the why behind a bucket list is pretty selfish and not very exciting to other people. Yeah. So to me, it was more about like, okay, how do I be better by 30? How do I, you know, be able to relate to people or have something to tell someone? Because a lot of people, you know, I didn't really have anyone. I didn't have anyone who could tell me what to do, who was like, no, I totally get where you're at here's what I did. So I was like, maybe I can become that for someone else. Maybe I can inspire someone else to, you know, say, you know what, this job is important, but it's not everything. And it's definitely not making me feel like my time on this earth is being well spent. Mm. And I feel like that is, that's something people kind of run away from. They run away from that fear of like, how am I spending my time? Is this worth it? Is yeah, this just the, good? The general society pressures. Yeah, exactly. What what I've been thinking the whole time yeah. while you've been while you've been talking though is uh, your parents both being you know the the standard of you know society's successful definition. Yeah. Uh, how did that go? You know, when you're like, hey, here's actually what I'm gonna do. Ah. Uh. That, I mean, it was lot, probably tough. Yeah. There's just, I mean, my father is the, you know, son of immigrants. My mother's father was an immigrant. So they have that drive and that, like, push for the American dream. And they're, they're baby boomers. They grew up at a time where if you put the work in, you know, went to school, uh, you could be successful. You could save up money. You'd have capital. You could buy a home. And you could work your way through college without being in debt. And that's not something like I'm, a, I'm the bleeding edge of a millennial. I'm a weird transition period because I was born in 82. But that's not something. We're that, all part of that group, by the way. Oh, really? Okay. And it's 81 I'm is the first year of the millennial. Okay. All right. Or 80 or 81. So, so yeah, cause I was my, born 81. Yeah, because my brother was I'm 80. just about to turn 38, so yeah. okay. January of 80. Yeah, so like I feel that they have this, their plan that they were told, you know, this is your life plan, do this, do this, and you will be successful. It worked for them. But they didn't see the world changing, and I feel like millennials have this pressure that's really unfair because they're coming into a world where you go into debt, massive debt, to go to college. 
like crippling debt. And there's not the jobs for you. You can't work your way through college anymore unless, you know, it's, I, you can. Everything's doable. It's really difficult. You know, housing prices are through the roof. So there's, I feel like there's a malaise and really a cynicism and depression that's happening in my generation because what we've been told worked before is not, but the people who tell us this still believe it does because they haven't seen... Because it works for them. Exactly. But they haven't seen that the world changed. Yeah. <clears throat> and like, you know, look at uh, like the housing crisis. Uh, that came about because people were buying debt, which means people were investing in money that literally didn't exist. Like it's money that people just thought should be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it bankrupted whole countries. Yeah. Yeah, and, Ryan and I... I uh, you know, we don't even know each other besides that we did all this over Instagram. Yeah. But Ryan and I are both in the mortgage industry oh, and, and worked through that crash. So I think what you said is very true. And I, I want to talk about that because one of the themes that we've had on this podcast is without that crash, where would we be? Because yeah. I think a lot of really good things happened from that crash. And I've discovered this through doing this podcast where you have people that kind of we're going through what you went through or went through the crash and lost everything and are trying to come back bigger. And you have all these startups you have, and it has a lot to do with technology, but it, anything you want to do, you can do right now and get paid from it and, and be really financially successful. Whether you want to produce your own music, start a podcast, whatever you want to do, you can get out there and do yeah. And you see companies like Uber, and SpaceX and all these new companies that didn't exist before the crash. And you wonder if without that, without the biggest crash since the Great Depression, would we have had this kind of revolution we're going through right now? Well, I think those are like, those are small, very specific cases. I think the problem is, well, a problem and a good thing is, you know, same with uh, television. You know, there's Mm -hmm. more channels and more shows than ever before. And there's more money floating around, but it's very diffuse. Like, it's small pockets. And it's hard to, like, you know, get bigger with all of this extra white noise to rise from it. Yeah, I could see it. I could see your point there. There is a lot of white noise, and you have to differentiate yourself. Like, film your podcast in a crazy museum. Yes. Right? Without doubt, I will remember this. <laughs> and we're getting a lot of pressure to change the... the not a, we're putting a lot of pressure on ourselves to change yeah. the venue because we don't want to polarize our guests and everything. So we're, we're making some changes, part of our, our brief branding here. But you got to stand out and be different. Yeah. But at the same time, that platform to do that is there. And you look at shows like Shark Tank and all these crazy ideas mm-hmm. and um, YouTube... I mean, yeah, all the sensations that's happening on YouTube and the fact that if you want to make a country music record and you want to make a lot of money doing it, you don't have to do it through the same business model that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Where you can produce your own album in your garage and have it sound great and put it out on Spotify, YouTube, all the different platforms for free and you're not um, dependent on big record labels and the guys in the suits and cigars 
to make you successful. Yeah, and I think... But you're right, that does create a lot of white noise, and yeah. I didn't really think of, never thought about it that way, is now your competitors aren't a handful of people that have gone through that right. producing business, uh, you know, business uh, uh, record producers. Uh, now your, your competition is everybody with a computer. Exactly. Like, the gatekeepers are... The gatekeepers are less powerful, but the new gatekeepers is just how to get the attention of the masses, yeah. which, you know, how do you know what meme is going to go viral? But that is, uh, but that's exciting, right? Oh, yeah. Because what it does is it allows you to be completely creative with no limitations, right? Yeah. If you have to, do, if you have to separate yourself from everybody else, well, guess what? There's no one telling you what you can or can't do. So get creative, right? Yeah, I definitely. I want to go back to something else you said, and you might have to repeat it. Sure. Um, you talked about uh, the quality of life you live, like that, that cradle to grave, right? What's yeah. the in-between? And we talked a lot about that at our workshop. Uh, what was the, uh, it was, what were the three words? It was uh, something, something, death. Um, get rich or die trying. It was no. It was. <laughs> it was. It was. It was. It was, it was love. It was uh, something. Love death. Uh, Laugh love death. I'll look it up and we'll have it next time. All right. But there's another book that I read that kind of talks about this, and it was a, about a poem. Uh, I'm very unprepared for this, uh, but uh, it was a poem. It was an old poem, and then a bunch of these authors and different people wrote articles on what this poem meant to them. And the book's called Dash. Mm. And the dash is on your gravestone. You have born this date, dash this date. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do with that dash? Right? That dash is what you're going to be. That's your legacy. That's what you're going to be known for. And a lot about the book is who are you as a person? Well, right. to kind of jump off that point into something that I play with a lot. Uh, my uh, musical chairs. No, I'm going to get a beer. Oh, cool. Can I get one too? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, something that uh, my a friend's dad, like my childhood best friend's dad told me once, and I have no idea why this stuck in my head out of anything else. But he said, you know, when you're brushing your teeth at night, sometimes do it with your left hand. Because if you do the same thing over and over again, the same way, your brain stops making that memory because there's no need to. You know, your brain has a limited amount of storage space. So if you're doing the same thing, your brain's just going to not make that memory because why use the space? And he ended up dying from complications from Alzheimer's, which always struck me as ironic years later. But for some reason, that always stuck in my head. So for me, the way to live a long life is to make a, is no matter how much time you actually have in that dash or after it, do different things because then you keep making these memories and so your life is actually longer even if the time is shorter. So if you do go to work and do the same thing until you're 60, you won't remember a lot of it. But if you do different things, if you really push yourself and try to make every year about something different or doing something different, you'll remember those years. And so even if you die earlier, your life was long it, yeah, because it was, it was, it was remembered. Yeah. Well, you've lived a longer life from 24 to 30 than most people do their whole life. Uh, I'm going to challenge you on longer. one thing. I'm going to challenge you on one thing. Yeah. And this isn't necessarily challenging you, but the, back to the whole millennial, and, and we're on the very 
tail end or beginning, however We're you want to look at it, it yeah. is there seems to be an attitude in our generation that you can't have everything you're talking about and achieve a, li- a high level of success in your career or wi- in your finances. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said about brushing your teeth with the other hand. But when it's easy to jump to that image of somebody in a cubicle working for a company for 30 years, right? But you can do exa- you can brush your teeth with your other hand in your career within your, your industry, your profession and have memorable moments through a career and have high levels of success in your career while at the same time being a better person and achieving the things that you're talking about. I think that gets lost in the millennial generation, right? You know, uh, I have to say you're right. And it's definitely, I wish I had that balance a little better or at least could figure out a way to maybe monetize what I love doing because it seems like my balance is I work, save up money, go off and do something, come back, work again. And it never, I haven't found the balance yet, but I mean, don't take what I'm saying as me thinking that the way I did it is the only way and the right way and that everyone else is a robot. Because I, you know, when I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, I was talking to the, uh, the store owner of the Kennedy Meadows store. Kennedy Meadows is the gateway to the Sierras. It's like they receive packages all year. It's where people pick up their snow gear and they start off into the hardest section of the Pacific Crest Trail. Which is the John Muir? Uh, Yeah, yeah, the John Muir. It's like you're going over 13,000 foot passes. Yeah. And, and so he, you, you did the John Muir this year then, right? Uh, I mean, Cause yeah. Because there was a, a portion that was... Uh, closed or or they it was suggested not to do lots it. of snow this year. Yeah, there it was the snowpack was at two hundred percent of normal. Uh, I didn't go through it at that time. I got to Kennedy Meadows. I skipped around uh, to Belden in Northern California, hiked to the Canadian border, and then came. You have a high snowpack again this year, which might happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, consider skipping around because a lot of the people who didn't skip and went through, uh, they get those bragging rights and they deserve them, but they got caught in all of the fires. And by skipping around, I was able to stay like some days, three days ahead of each fire closure. And I got to see the trail when it was pristine and everyone else was just walking through smoke or having a road walk. So there's uh, there's no shame in not staying true to the through just, uh, hike your hike. Yeah. PCT hikers. That was going to be my opening question. Cause when we do these podcasts, I don't have a list of questions. Okay. I, I don't want it to be an honor view, interview. I want it to be exactly what we're doing right now. Cool. Right? But, but I like to have one question to get us going. I was going to say, what is your hike? You know, hike your hike, but you we're doing that. But I want to go back to what you said. Um, Oh, right. And, so and I don't think that sorry, that, that I, was your point, but yeah. I think that there's a culture of that in our age group and younger right now. Um, yeah, but I think that culture of that is also like realizing that we got sold, we got sold an incorrect model. We got sold a model of you, like I was saying with the uh, baby boomers, you know, you work, you make enough money and you know, the cost of living and or uh, minimum wage has not risen with the cost of living and with inflation. 
So we're actually making less money as a generation than we were the generation before. Like $6 an hour in 1980 is $18 an hour now. But I understand that statistic, but what about the average income? Because not everybody in that, not all income earners in that age group are on minimum wage. No, so has not the on... average income really declined? I think so because the money's worth less. Can we look at that up? Can we go uh, average income? Uh, I think it hasn't risen with cost of living and uh, with the cost of food. Houses are more expensive. College is more expensive. So I feel that, you know, we don't have as we're not making as much money. That's why people have to take second jobs. That's why there is a gig economy right now. It's not because we want to make extra money to have fun. It's we need to make extra money to pay for rent. Yeah. And so like that's if that digs into the or that affects the attitude of just like, you know what, why am I working this hard Mm -hmm. if it's not going to work out, if I can never afford a home? I guess another interesting statistic to look up is the percentage of entrepreneurship in our generation compared to our parents' generation. Mm. And it feels like it's a lot higher for that reason, is that I get out of college with a business degree and I'm lucky if I can make 40, 50,000 a year working in a cubicle. Yeah. Screw that. I'm going to go start a brewery sure, and become an entrepreneur. And I, a large percentage of the people I know in my age group, our age group, are entrepreneurs. I mean, you are. Roll your own book, right? Yeah. Successful entrepreneur yeah. is another thing. <laughs> I have yet to find that. Monetarily successful. Uh, I've I just... Uh, <clears throat> the other day on Facebook, there was a like a minute and a half section where Steve Harvey was basically talking about like uh, he, he was basically talking about like in order to, you know, basically be successful, no matter what it is, you're going to have to take a leap. Mm-hmm. And it's like a leap of faith. And he basically broke it down to was the difference between the people that ultimately were successful in whatever standard that may be versus the people uh, that didn't achieve the success was when you jump, there's going to be fear. Yeah. And in that fear, that's the time where you're panicking going, oh, man, did I just do something really stupid? Like for you, it might be like, man, here I am in Japan. You could have packed it up after the first hard week and called it quits. Or you After stuck the it. Burning Mountain, right? Yeah, Burning or, Mountain was the breaking point. Or you stuck it through to let your parachute open t- to be able to fully, you know, be able to finish that journey. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to bring it back to uh, the PCT, uh, it was a really profound moment uh, when we were, me, so I hiked it with uh, this 22-year-old German named Black Widow who was... Uh, we all get trail names. Her, she was Black Widow. I was Snake Eyes. What was uh, Emery's? Um, Pooparazzi. Pooparazzi. Yeah. We were lucky. We <laughs> lucked out on trail names. <laughs> Some people what, weren't so lucky. Yeah. What was it? Black Widow? She was Black Widow. I was Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes is pretty good. Yeah, but it's mostly because I couldn't see snakes. So I oh. just walk by rattlesnakes, oblivious. <laughs> and they'd be like, Paul. And I'd look back and go, oh, fuck. Yeah. That one is even bigger than the last one. Did you carry a rattlesnake uh, kit with you? No. Yeah. Those don't work. They don't? No. If you get bit, you have to like... The you little know. suction cup things? Nope. I have one in my truck for when we go fly it's fishing. just for funsies. Well, makes <laughs> you feel better. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, so... There's a really good rattlesnake joke, but I won't tell it. <laughs> For another time. So uh, we, like the, when you get into uh, southern Oregon, except for Crater Lake, it's just 250 miles of like flat forest that's, all the trees look the same, it's really boring, and we had a horrible mosquito season. Like we had probably 40 to 50 behind us in a cloud, morning, noon, and night, even at night, and like you dive into your tent and they're surrounding you, you wake up, they're surrounding you, it was hell. And you know, we hiked through it, and we got to this place called Shelter Cove, which was a little fishing resort where they sh- fish for kokanee. And I think I fished there before. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, yeah. Shelter Cove. Um, it's by. It's not that far from Timberline Lodge. Yeah. Yeah. So it was mosquito. Kind of kokanee. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was mosquito free for some reason. But so you know, we were just happy. We were taking our, uh, you know, just taking the break. And this uh, woman, who I think's name was No Chicken, uh, she just is fed up. And she's like, ugh, you know, I just, I called my son. I've had it with the mosquitoes. I'm leaving. And, you know, she's kind of looking at us. We're like, yeah, they're proof of an uncaring God. What do you want? They suck. Did you have one of those thermosills with you? uh, No. battery-operated things? No. I mean, we had 100% DEET, and it wasn't working. Wow. But, you know, she leaves. And I, that night I'm, you know, setting up my tent next to Black Widow and I'm like, are you near your breaking point? She said, no. And I'm like, me neither. Like the, the suck has to end at some point. And we keep hiking and we start to run into Southbounders and they're like, you know, 70 miles away, you get to Three Sisters. And we're like, whatever, this forest will never end and we'll keep hiking it. And then we meet a guy who says 30 miles away, you'll get to Three Sisters. And we're like, okay, maybe that's true. And we hike and we hike and we suddenly just walk out of the forest for the first time in two weeks. And we look around and all of the tree trunks have become meadows and all of the tree branches are mountains and all of the mosquitoes somehow become butterflies. <laughs> and we're just in this meadow like laughing because it's, a, it's magic. We escaped the forest. And would it have been magical if you didn't spend two weeks in that environment? No, and we were like, what? What does no chicken think of this now? Like, when she, does she, is she still happy she left? Because if she just stuck it out, you can get to that meadow. And that was such a teachable moment for us of just like, you know, there's always something on the other side. So when you learn, when you go through these lessons, like on the pilgrimage and on the Pacific Crest Trail, do you take those lessons with you and apply them to other things? Because there's a lot of different analogies to describe what you described right there with that. I think that's one of the more beautiful ways of describing going through pain to achieve a goal, right? And then how it feels coming out of the other end. But I mean, do those, do those lessons you've learned, have they impacted you outside? They have, but it's also, I think you need to keep, I think you need to commit to relearning lessons. Like I, I don't think you just get one big, Nothing cinematic, you know, it's like you, you never get that big life changing thing. You know, you fall back on old patterns, yeah. you get into a new situation and you fall back to your default of being afraid. It's and so you so, need to just keep doing it. It's so easy. Yeah. To get to to get to a point where you don't feel that way, to feel that, oh, I don't need any more personal development. Yeah. You know, I, I don't need any more motivation. But what you said is so powerful and so true 
that you have to constantly be relearning. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget what you just said, going through the mosquitoes, mosquitoes turning into butterflies, tree trucks turning into mountains or meadows. Uh, the trunks were me- meadows and the branches were mountains. Yeah. Three. Are you going to put that in your second book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, right now I'm uh, writing. I've taken all of my blogs and I'm reposting them on medium.com because I already had a bit of a following on that blogging platform okay. from other stuff I wrote. And so it's nice to go back through the PCT blogs, relive the memories, and also give them more context, both in the moment, be, having time to like describe, but also um, knowing what the future is. Because some people I mention in the blog, you know, in my old ones, I come back and I'm like, you know what? I don't really need to mention that person because I never run into him again. Or, you know, like Black Widow. I met her on the first day. We ended up hiking 80% of this together. I didn't know that when I met her. Like, she was just another hiker who somehow was able to match my pace. And so, you know, I kind of... Now I'm looking at it as like, okay, well, how do you tell this story? So, of course, I got to put more attention to her and more description Mm -hmm. because she's someone who the reader is going to know from the beginning to the end. But then there's but then there's people that that are intermittent. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, there's people who I can who I need to put more attention onto and like describe more. And there are some people who I met who, you know. I knew briefly, and then they moved on, hiked ahead, left, whatever. So, yeah, it's like, do I need to mention them? Because, you know, when you're hiking it, you don't know if you're going to see them again. And while I was hiking it, I was just trying to tell the story as I saw it at the moment. So to uh, to lighten it up or to kind of segue off of that, <clears throat> I, talking about I, no, I texted, I texted Emery. Uh-huh. Uh, and I said, did you meet a snake eyes on the trail? And he said, I met a few snake names. Snake eyes kind of sounds familiar. I sent him a picture and he says, he looks like my long lost brother. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, more likely that he would recognize the name Puparazzi. Yeah. And so I laughed. Uh, so yeah, I don't think funny. I ran into Puparazzi. Hilarious. Should go on his podcast. All right. By, yes. By Land. He writes a blog too called Byland. Okay. And he just started... He started a podcast after coming on our podcast, so I, I like to say we inspired him to start a podcast. Yeah, hit me up, Pooperazzi. <clears throat> Let's talk trail. So uh, one thing that I, I'm learning by doing this podcast is, um, you know, when it comes to goal setting, your seven goals, right? I'm a person that requires high levels of accountability. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm going to set a goal, I'm going to tell lots of people. I'm going to pinpoint specific people for specific goals and ask them to hold me accountable whether they know they are or not. Um, but what I'm learning is that some people don't need that. Because I kind of, for a while there, I kind of thought everybody should have a lot of accountability. But some people that have achieved high levels of, levels of success in one form or another, when I ask them that question, and they, ha- they can prove it because of their success, is I'm kind of a self-accountable person. So mm-hmm. I don't need that in my life. How do you feel? Uh... I mean, I have like, you know, I'm not emotionally 100% healthy, which is why I got into comedy in the first place. So to me, uh, I don't need to ask people to hold me accountable because in my brain, telling someone I'm going to do that would means they remember that I said that and they're thinking about me all the time. And if I don't accomplish the goal, then they're going to be disappointed, even though they're my friends. And if I don't accomplish something, they'll literally be like, oh, whatever, dude, we still love you. 
But in my brain, it's like, oh man, everything depends. Everyone's opinion of me depends on if I finish this. So I've kind of internalized my own self-criticism into other people, which is not healthy, but it's great <laughs> for motivation. <laughs> it's funny. That's a good. That's a good take on it. But it's it's so, interesting. So yeah. is that, so are you saying that you don't like having accountability partners? No, uh, I'm saying I don't need them because I already assume everyone is only focused on me. You're already assuming <laughs> that everyone's judging whether you're going to complete exactly. The task or not. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Don't you think, Ryan? Because we set a lot of business-related goals in our industry, especially this time of year. It's business plan yeah. time, right? So how much production do you want to have mm-hmm. and all this? And there is that nagging fear of everybody's going to know my numbers, mm-hmm. and, you know. But, but there is comfort in not hitting those and being in the pack with everybody else. It's when you start to break out of that pack, then you have a different judgmental imagination of what people are saying about you when you start breaking out of the pack when maybe you have a bunch of people training for the marathon but you're one of you're you're one of five that made it out of the group of 10 that trained yeah i i mean like finishing the pct uh to bring it back is that's been six months of my life so it's the most recent idea uh like i think only I don't know what the statistics are because they're really loose, but about 10 to 25% of people actually finish the whole thing. And I was one of them and uh, Black Widow was one of them. And for us, it wasn't like the, the divide that I really saw was between people who thought it would be fun to hike the Pacific Crest Trail and people who wanted to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And me and Black Widow wanted to hike it. And other people thought it would be fun. And when they didn't have fun, they stopped hiking it because that's what their goal was, was to have fun, and they didn't. So for us, it was, there was no option. It was, we want to do this thing. And I feel like we got a huge reward from it because to us, the magic was on the trail. Like that's where we saw the beautiful things. That's where we had amazing experiences. And you know, they weren't always fun, but we didn't lose sight of like, there's nowhere else either of us wants to be. We truly love doing this. And so I feel like that in itself can be a motivation is do you, what do you love about something? If you love the numbers, then devote yourself to getting those numbers. You know, if you love just the act of whatever you're doing, the act of just making money, then devote yourself to that. I mean, not to a massive extent, because then you're a psycho. But, <laughs> you know, don't be a Coke brother. But be someone who finds, someone who loves your work or finds something to love about your work. And that, I think, will keep you more accountable than wondering what other people think about you. I think what you're saying is so beautiful and so true. But. I knew there was a but. <laughs> and I, I really mean that. This isn't a butt sandwich. Okay. <laughs> Don't Google that, Ryan. Don't Google butt sandwich. Also, do not Google lemon party or tub party. <laughs> uh, what you're saying is very beautiful and very true. But, you, but. But it's so important to know what your why is. Okay. Mm. And if you are uber successful, financially, 
and you know why you're, you, you know why that's important to you, you can do a lot of good with it. So if you are uber successful in your profession and you are uh, doing it with the character that you've been talking about for the last hour, okay, and you can achieve hundreds or millions or whatever your goals of, of, of income, what can you do with that? Can you take that income and donate it or start other businesses to employ other people? Or can you use th those dollars as a catalyst to further your life mission or further your why? And I think that now that we're seeing people in our, that millennial, that, that post-recession generation come out, you're seeing more good things done with the wealth that's being created than maybe in the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you know, then there's the negative effect that Facebook has had on the world, really. And but, that's, starting to, that's starting to break in the news, yeah. like with the studies yeah. of so, suicide rates and depression rates among millennials. Yeah. And, and, our, and our president for a lot of it, too. It's crazy. It's crazy entertaining, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but It'd be so entertaining if it was happening in Canada. Yeah. I would love if it was just <laughs> happening in Canada, if he was just like Rob Ford, just the, just the mayor of Toronto. I would love watching Donald Trump. I would watch it every day. Was he the guy that... Uh, he the was big the fat crack, white guy, yep, crackhead, crack-smoking yeah. mayor. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was just. Yeah, he was uh, like if um, the dude from Tommy Boy became mayor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like Brian Dennehy. It was great, yeah. but um, yeah, no, I think uh, knowing the yeah, I think the why of stuff is. I mean, that's something that escaped me, and is the reason why I never really focused on a career. Uh, my parents told me, go to college. They never said, why? And I never, they never really pumped me as to why I was in college and why uh, I was studying and why it was important. So I got out and I looked around and I, for the first time, didn't have those parental and authority figure like pressures to finish college. I'd done it. And so I was like, oh, well, okay, well, what do I like? What do I want to be? Why did I do this? And so I never really had a, I never really figured out why I wanted to do anything but just live. Because to me, like being alive is so, so I, I, I've never gotten tired of it. Do you feel like you've achieved that goal? Um, I feel like I'm better at, I feel like I'm better at it. I think I, I'll never fully achieve it, but I feel like, Never, I feel like I'm doing what I should be doing with my time, uh, given the fact that I don't really know if I'll ever find a way to be financially successful at it. But I do know that, you know, if I get hit by a car or something, I'm not going to look back and be like, God, I wasted that time. I can look back and be like, man, I lived. And it was like I was depressed for a lot of my life. And now, Especially on the PCT, I just had these moments of such deep wells of gratitude for being alive and for being here, and especially with all of the death that I've experienced recently. So I feel like I don't know if I'd be better off if I just stayed at Microsoft and eventually gotten hired on full time and just worked because I'd always be waking up like, what? Why am I doing this? 
Like, what's this money going to do besides buy me comfort? When comfort's not what I want. I want to be on your pass, staring at a sunset and being like, I get to be alive. Mm-hmm. And actually feeling the gratitude of feeling the gratitude that you are alive. Like this is the dream that you're having in between two unknowns. You talk about that a lot in your book too, how sometimes you, you get confused if you're dreaming or not. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I mean, and to get like woo woo about it, uh, a lot of Zen Buddhists at the end of their lives mention that this is just a dream. And I, Sometimes I like to look at it that way because, you know, we fell asleep in death world when we were born, and eventually we go back to the death world when we die. So since that has been most of our experience, you know, the billions of years before, suddenly we come into consciousness, we fall out of consciousness, and it's billions more years of whatever, this unknowable unknowable, what if this is the dream? And what if that is actually us waking up into something else? Do you, uh, have you studied the multiverse theory? Uh, besides Rick and Morty, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I was going to say as I was listening to all this is obviously everybody's journey in life and experiences are all going to be different. So yeah. your childhood, you know, your interpretation of college and all that. When I was in high school, I actually wanted to go away to college so I could kind of test, hey, if, if what my parents have been saying all along is true, if the Northwest and what I think about it is true. So I ended up in the Midwest. Me too. Weirdly enough, where did um, you go? Missouri. I was in Minnesota. So, you know, I, I go out there to kind of test everything. Are, are my beliefs actually my beliefs or are they somebody else's beliefs? Mm. And for me, I had a blast in college. Um, and as soon as I was out there and away from family, it it put things into perspective for me. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't necessarily view college as, uh, you know, I'm trying to think how you were putting it. You saw why you were in college. You knew why you went. Yeah. And I, to discover yourself. Yeah. And again, like none of this is me saying my path is the right one. I'm saying these are the things I believe and I believe them more strongly every year. And if it's resonating with whoever's listening, then, you know, listen to it. But if it's not and you think, oh man, like I lived a different life and I'm happy with that, like good, (laughs) like make more money than me. Well, no, I I think, Paul, I, I think that you're devaluing what you're saying. You think so? I, I do because I think that uh, I know that I'm walking away from this uh, having a train of thought that I haven't had in a long time. Um, and so I, I think that what you're saying is going to impact a lot of people or at least get them to thinking a certain way or analyzing where they're at or deciding that they need to relearn some things that they've forgotten, like brushing your teeth with the other hand. Uh, <clears throat> but back to what you guys were talking about, uh, that's what's beautiful about the Mormon religion. And I have a very close friend who's Mormon, and he has a son who's on his mission, mm-hmm. two-year mission. Okay. So when they go on their two-year mission, uh, they are not allowed to talk to their family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Christmas and one other holiday, they get a phone call. Um, otherwise, they're allowed like once a month to send an email, 
And it's the whole purpose of what we're talking about. It's to go discover yourself, who you are, answer your questions, and then come back. Mm. And if you look at a lot of different religions, you talk about this in your book a little bit. Um, and you said it was refreshing to see another religion that wasn't tied to the bounds of Christianity, something yeah. along those lines. Uh, it, and I just read a great book um, called Geronimo, written by uh, Mike Leach. And it's the same thing. Is they're sent out on their missions. What do they call them? Vision quest? Yeah, spirit yeah. quest. Spirit quest. Yeah. So it's a very similar thing. So it is, a, it is a common theme among a lot of different religions to go do that. And a lot of people don't experience that. The Pacific Crest Trail, one common theme you see is that's kind of their vision quest. Are you guys on a time rush here? Do we need to wrap up? No, nah, I think we're good. No, good. Cause yeah. we, I could go all day. Yeah. This is really Let's, good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just give me the. Do you need to check signal. the score on the Seahawks game? Nah. Okay. Whatever. How are we doing? Ah. We're playing uh, Jacksonville. Yeah. Oh well. But yeah, let's uh, let's keep going with this. I mean, I'm on I'm on her schedule, so she says it's cool. Let's talk. Uh, but to get like, so I'm not devaluing what I was saying. It's just like. I've come to recognize that, you know, being able to do all this stuff does come from a place of privilege and not, you know, like enormous wealth and not like, oh, mommy and daddy, can I have, you know, this much money to go do this? Like I've worked, like I saved up my money to do all of this, Mm -hmm. but it's also coming from a place where I didn't have to take care of my parents. I didn't have to take care of my family. I never got, uh, I never got a... Uh, life-threatening injury that bankrupted me from the American medical system. I graduated debt college free. And so to go back to the Kennedy Meadows thing, I was talking with the owner of the store. He goes down to LA. He works during the summer. He comes, or he works during the winter and then he comes back and he runs the store. He helps people go off on their journeys. He finds a lot of meaning in it. But we were talking because when I got to Kennedy Meadows, it was September off season. So we actually had time to like meet this guy when he's not doing a thousand things. And he was talking about how he just sees these robots in LA driving to work, driving home. And he's like, I just didn't want to be one of them. And I was like, I understand, but I don't look at people who do that with disdain. Like, I think it's from a place of privilege to not have to be a robot and to not have to like go to work and go home and take care of your kids and maybe your ailing parents and it has a lot to do with the decisions that you've made though, right? Because it does. I've made decisions in my life that have made me uh, kind of a robot. Yeah, like getting, you get married, you have kids, you have debt, and now you have a mortgage, and now you have to go do these things to fill those. It yeah. doesn't mean I'm not getting fulfillment out of it. I don't have control over my own destiny, but it is easy to fall into that trap you're talking about it is but it's also easy to not recognize that a lot of the choices i've made have been because i knew that ultimately i had a social safety net in my family that would make me okay like no one in my family kanahara has gotten sick you what know did you say kanahara it's a uh, yiddish for like no evil eye it's basically knock on wood okay but no one's gotten sick you know no one is debilitated in any way besides my idiot dog uh i've got one too yeah like so i've been able to just say hey guys i'm leaving i'm gonna go do this and they're not like if you go do this we will 
suffer or be financially unable to pursue our own lives. Yeah, like if my wife went into the Pacific Crest Trail, the wheels would come off in the Steinman residence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be bad. It would be yeah. bad. My daughter would be kicked out of school for being late every day. She'd just have Cheerios in her hair. Our dry cleaning bill would be out of control. It, I, I digress. But, yeah, so it's like, you know, I had the freedom to do that, and part of that's life choices. Part of that's because the thousands of times I've fallen or been in karate and blocked a kick, I haven't broken my leg. I haven't busted my knee, so I don't have medical debt. But that's luck. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of the PCT is luck and fortune and choices. And I think that a lot of, mm. a lot of, one of the problems with our country and our society is we view everything in terms of individual choice rather than individual choice plus life circumstances that broke your way. Like we consider luck to be morally determined. We consider like someone's born into a bad situation and their life doesn't get better or they born into poverty and they remain in poverty. We say, oh, that's your moral failing. We don't look at that as like, wow, you were unable to break out of a system that is keeping you down. But how do you explain all the people that do? There's a, there's a trend among uber successful people or people that have maybe that's not the right word, but let's just use uber successful, okay? That come from horrible backgrounds. There is not a trend. There are specific cases of people. Uh, But if you look at the statistics, if you are born in poverty, more likely than not, you will remain in poverty your entire life. Because, Paul, there's sometimes I wish that I had, I wish that my childhood wasn't so good because I see people that have horrible childhood, a lot in in, in comedians, right? Yep. You see that trend that you can't really be a good comedian unless you had screwed up parents. I think I heard that somewhere along the line. But like you, yeah. you do see a lot of people that struggle. It's like uh, a great example would be uh, uh, Bill McDermott. And not bad parents, but maybe just weren't privileged. Sure. Right? And Bill McDermott uh, was uh, high up in um, Xerox. Xerox. And he started one of the world's largest software companies. Uh, but he came from uh, no money, very poor family. And a lot of people that have achieved a lot of financial success have come from... And I'm not saying that's not possible. And I'm not saying... And I'm not trying to take away from anyone who does. But what I'm saying is we lack a compassion in this country for people who don't make it because we think that the people who did, that it was entirely based on themselves and not based on luck, privilege, uh, and things just breaking the right way at the right time. You know, we view success, we don't view success backwards. We view success forwards. We don't view it as like, of, we view it as a like, of course this person was successful because look at them, they're successful now. We don't, no one writes about the people who didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And there's far more of them because we want a success story. No one writes about a half success. Someone who made it this far, but hey, they got cancer. Yeah. Someone who made it this far, but oh my God, they had a medical bill or they had to quit their job and take care of their ailing parent. So we view, we view success and failure individually. We don't view it as part of a larger system. And I think that's a, that keeps us from focusing on having a social safety net in this country, 
you know, universal basic income, healthcare, a lot of the things that in Europe, you know, if you're successful in Europe, that's awesome. Like, great, good for you. I would never take away what you've achieved, even if you're born into poverty. But I feel like there's a greater level of life uh, happiness, you know, because people don't have worries like, what if I get sick? Oh my God, I need to stay at this job because they provide health care. I can't go off on my own and mm -hmm. be an entrepreneur because I can't afford the medicine that it would that I would need while I was becoming successful. So like you talk about Bill McKibben, uh, Bill McKibben, I'm going to guess is white. Uh, Bill McDermott. Bill McDermott. Bill McDermott. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, he's white. Uh, he's white. Is his, did his parents immigrate here from Italy? Uh, I'm not exactly positive where. Uh, his dad worked for uh, Bell for the cable company. Hanging like cable. Okay, so very gonna, blue collar. Yeah, but I'm going to guess he had health insurance growing up. I would imagine so. I'm going to guess tell union you. job. Uh, um, they, 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 his parents didn't have money. Well, not having money and not having support are two different things. But well, anyway, what I'm saying is a lot of things broke right for him. And a lot of uh, his success was because he was allowed to move through the system unopposed. Whereas a lot of people, they are opposed and we never hear about them. So it's, again, like, I don't take away from anyone's success. Anyone who is successful, I say congratulations. That is amazing. You worked hard. You probably earned it. Mm -hmm. But I think we don't look at the larger cases. We only want to we only want to have heroes of capitalism. We don't want to look at everyone else and say you're struggling because the system is not helping you. It's got to be both. Yes, I think it has to be both as well. You, you've got to help people make the right decisions and give them the inspiration you're giving people by telling your stories of setting goals and pulling yourself out of whatever situation you're in. Yeah. And at the same time, giving them the sociological security to do it, I think. Right? Yes. So, that's, I mean, and, and it's also an attitude thing. Like uh, something that I realized as I was coming out of my 20s into my 30s was I was seeing two types of people. There were people who, and all kinds of people, people who had bad life situations growing up, people who had great life situations growing up, people who were loved, people who, you know, had not found love. And ultimately, one of the big splits I found in the people I knew, and ultimately the people I stayed in touch with or didn't, was there were some people who said, well, Life has not worked out for me completely. I did not get all of the breaks that I wanted, but the world is not going to help me get those unless I help myself and take responsibility for my own actions. And then there were other people who continually said, I just have bad luck, and they didn't, and they stopped working, and they just blamed everything for why they never were successful or why they're always in their situation. And so I think, again, like the people who are successful, the people who make that choice of like, look, no one is going to care more about my path than me. So ultimately, I'm the one who has to do it. That is an enormous break that I think happens somewhere in your 20s and will define the rest of your life. And, and on that break, that definition of success isn't necessarily financial. No. You've had extreme levels of success, but it's not a dollar about to you, right? No. 
and it so it's that breaking <laughs> point. Really sad. <laughs> but the, the, but but that wasn't your goal. No, your goal wasn't to run a marathon, black belt in karate, five other things, and make five hundred thousand dollars by the time you're thirty. No, my goal was right. to sit here and talk to anyone who's listening, and say, look, if what I'm saying resonates with you, and if you also felt the way I did, where you just didn't know, you're not alone. You're not alone, and you can do this. Just focus on one thing and get over that fear, that hump of like, what if I fail? Just get over that, and I promise either you'll succeed or you'll learn something and you'll keep going. But it's that little fear of failure every time. Like the running the marathon, that was one of the hardest things I did just because it'd been built up in my mind, like, what if you fail? What if you don't make it? What if you hurt yourself? And eventually I was just like, fucking so? Yeah. What if I do? What, you know, stop telling yourself what you can't do and just find out. So, but how is that programmed in your mind to, to have that breakthrough on your own? Because uh, like, I, I'm not that way. I get stuck in that thought and I need somebody to tell me to change and I'm all on board. I'm 100% on board. You know, that's why we're doing this today. So I had this idea two years ago and I had written out a business plan for it, written out a list of guests and everything we we're going to do and I was doing a presentation uh, I'm sorry for the people listening to this podcast because I've told this story a lot, but Paul's never heard it, so I'm going to tell it again. Yeah, it's new to me, people listening to this podcast. Get off your horse. <laughs> so uh, I was doing a, a presentation on like call reluctance, and mm-hmm. part of my definition of call reluctance was inaction, when you have a great idea, but you don't act on it for fear of X, Y, Z, embarrassment, failure, you name it, right? And Ryan said, like your podcast idea. Mm. And this was in front of 20 people that... Uh, I'm, their opinion matters to me. They're always, ju- I mean, it's my coworkers. And so I go, God damn it, Ryan. <laughs> yes, like my podcast. Uh, and then we started the podcast the next week because I wasn't going to let Ryan, and he was doing that to motivate me, right? Yeah. Because I was extremely fearful of putting myself in this format out on the internet for everyone to see. But so I guess my, back to my question. I need people like Ryan kicking me and motivating me and I pay lots of money to go to seminars and stuff to help me through this but that's just part that's just in your in your wiring it's not that's the thing it's not in my wiring to do this I was really scared up until I was so 24 how did it, you decide that I'm not going to let fear prevent me from my seven goals because you just you just have to make that leap and you just have to keep making that leap and it gets easier every time but it's just like, just fuck it. Why not? What else? What do you have to lose, honestly, in this life? You know, things go wrong all the time. People die from, I mean, shit, people, uh, fr- uh, someone who I'd known, she'd known me since I was born. She's my brother's age, just died of untreated diabetes uh, while I was on the PCT. And like four people I knew died while I was hiking it. And it's just like, you know what? Life's short. Just do it. Just stop being afraid and go for it because your life will be what you make of it. And in the end, life is not, it's not a story. You know, we view it as a story because we, that's how humans understand things. We have to view things narratively, but it's not. It's just what you're making of it at every given second. And if you just 
make that leap, your life will be what you want, you know? Just, I don't know, you just do it and it's scary. But ultimately, I looked back and I was like, I don't like where my life is right now. And if I don't do something and if I don't try these, this will be my life. And what's interesting is it, is it wasn't that I don't like where my life is right now because of bad things like abuse, drug yeah. addiction, horrible circumstances. It was I'm, I want to change where I'm at because I want to be a better person. Yeah. I just didn't want to be paralyzed anymore. Uh, so with that said, what does, so how old are you now? I'm 35. So what does a 41-year-old Paul Barak look like? God, I, I wish I knew. I actually have a, I've been working on that because I know I want to get another book out before I turn 40. Um, I was going to do stand-up comedy a thousand times before I quit. I still have 50 to do. That was your goal? That was my goal, yeah, a thousand times. So you want to do a thousand yep, performances. And I, yep, and I ended up on 954. And I don't know if I'm going to go back. I might drop that one. But uh, a 41-year-old... When, when did you decide that? Cool. Uh, that wasn't one of your seven, right? No, no, no. That's when I started doing comedy, which was 2011, uh, the December of 2011. And that was just because I was like, oh, well, let's do it 10 times. You know, you've been afraid to do stand-up comedy forever. Do it 10 times. It'll suck. You'll leave. No one will remember you. And, you know, no one's going to be standing around laughing at you. And then I did it 10 times. I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. What about 50? I did it 50 times. I was like, okay, well, 1,000. 1,000, I'll probably be better. <laughs> and I definitely got better at it. But again, like, it's so that was, time suck. That was 954 times in five years? Yeah. I went up a lot. So what's, what's 954 divided by five? That's a lot. It is a lot. And you did this, uh, so you're uh, 35 now, is that mm -hmm. what you said? Yep. I started when I was... So this is after you achieved your seven goals? Uh, right before. 2011, I finished, in, I finished uh, the bicycle trip in 2012. Um, yeah, so other than that... Uh, What's the answer, a lot? Well, it's, 100 and, it's 190 per year. So uh, it's half the year. That sounds about right, yeah. That's crazy. Ugh, I know. <laughs> uh, What's the uh, comedy club in Portland? Uh, Helium. The other one. And then there's one more. Harvey's. Harvey's. Yeah. Did you play there? No. no did you I ever meet Roddy Roddy Piper? I did not. He used to play there all the time. Really? Before he died, yeah. Well, he was just, I didn't know he did stand-up. I thought he was a wrestler. He was a wrestler. Also wore the sunglasses. That was the Macho Man. That was the Macho Man. No, it wasn't. Roddy Roddy Piper was the one in uh, They Live. Oh, it was the one in They Live. Yep. Oh, right, but the wrestler wore the sunglasses. Yeah, you're yeah. right. That he was wore a kill. Savage. Yes. Not in the movie. Yes, <laughs> not in <laughs> the movie at all. Um, Wait, no, you're talking Braveheart. Piper's Pit. <laughs> uh, originally, that was supposed to be uh, uh, the dude from... Uh, that was originally supposed to be Kurt Russell. And that was right around the same time Escape from L.A. came out, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah. Kurt Russell and uh, John Carpenter did so much work together. Yeah. Also did The Thing and a couple Didn't John ones. Carpenter do Escape from L.A.? Yeah. 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 Yeah, he was, he was a beast for a while. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of reaching a point where I'm thinking, uh, okay, well, uh, you know, is a wife and kids in the picture, or am I just going to go? I just looked at Michelle, but she's texting. Yes. <laughs> Well, we'll see. <laughs> uh, 
It's it's very early on in the relationship. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Paul, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I just I want to uh, EMT school is another thing where I need to like bite the Dude, bullet. You and are just all do over that. the place. I know that's the problem. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I think it's so cool. So EMT. Yeah. And what was your degree in? Uh, international relations, political science. I have never used it. Uh, it sounds like you're losing, using it in a lot of your uh, uh, opinions on social matters, though, right? I mean, yeah, that. Yeah. And I still read a lot. I still try to, you know, keep up and, you know, just watch the world. So let's talk about this for a second. <clears throat> it's amazing how many people, people know that are badass, that are cool, have great stories that you never slow down enough to take the time to realize, right? I mean, us, you and I having a five-minute exchange in a bar has led to an amazing conversation today. Is that something that you kind of, when you talk about your character and, and, and slowing down, and where I'm not going to do this fast. I'm going to do this slow at my own pace. Oh, I remember what I was I was trying to get out of that political conversation we were having. And I, I had a good segue. Tap, tap, and hit the okay. real quick. Uh, I, I want to ask him about uh, uh, walking meditation. When you get back, I'm going to forget. Walking meditation, okay? But this is, this is what uh, I think a lot of people miss, is you go through your life every day and you get caught in that routine and if you just take five minutes to slow down and realize that that cashier I had the experience this morning I don't like cashiers at grocery stores don't ask me how I'm doing do you really care if I found everything okay how about you just ring up my groceries as fast as you can <laughs> without taking up any of my time and if they're in front of me and you have a checkbook it's 2017 do you have to write your check for the groceries so that's my mentality when I go through the grocery store but today I had a great conversation with the lady at the grocery store. I don't remember how we got on it, but I said, you know, I'm going to slow down and talk to this lady. She lives in Cougar. We talked about the uh, mudslide that shut the, the road down. And then we talked about how their dream was to live in Cougar. And they, so they bought this lot. And then they lived in a little cabin for 10 years while I saved up enough money to build this house cash. Anyways, I had a great conversation with this lady. It didn't take any time out of my day, three minutes. But I feel for a long period of my life, I was going so fast that you don't slow down and take the time to get to know the people around you because there are so many cool people like Paul that I met in a bar for five minutes that uh, uh, will definitely make an impact on the decisions I make in my life. And I'm really excited to hear about walking meditation because if you have listened to multiple episodes of this podcast, uh, a few episodes ago, I said that I might be thinking about someday starting to uh, get in better shape and, and work out. Uh, and so I, I've started to. Okay, walking meditation. And uh, uh, so I'm, my goal is I have a, a big workout plan, but my goal is just to go a few weeks with going 30 to 45 minutes on the elliptical. And uh, it sucks. And at about like 20 minute mark, a couple of times I've shut my eyes. And I'm like, I'm just going to shut my eyes and just kind of meditate. And I make it about 15, 20 seconds, and then I feel like I'm going to like hurt myself. 
I feel like I'm going to fall. Like I open my eyes, I'm kind of dizzy, and I have to grab the things mm-hmm. and not fall over. So, Paul, uh, tell us about uh, walking meditation. So for walking meditation, you uh, slow down, you breathe in, and you try to feel every footstep. And as you feel every footstep and every breath, you feel yourself moving ahead both to on the path and in time. And you just try to like focus in on the experience of walking, what you're hearing, what you're listening to, what you're feeling. And it's just another way of meditating where instead of having to sit still, you can actually be in motion and experience the world slowing down as you notice it. And again, that's because if you notice and remember something and really try to have attention, it be- time becomes longer. So the little meditation that I've done has been for uh, 5 to 15 minutes in the mornings, and I know very little about meditation. That's uh, okay. I do too. <laughs> but... What I try to do is let thoughts... I don't try to not think. Mm-hmm. I try to let thoughts go in and out as they please without giving them any attention. Yep. And I focus on my breathing. Um, <coughs> and I shut my eyes. Uh, and I don't do anything like you know weird like that. But I just sit there and uh, focus on my breathing. So is that kind of what you're doing when you're doing the walking meditation? Mm-hmm. Is that you're focused on your breathing or you're letting the thoughts go in and out? If yeah. you hear a, if you hear a uh, noise like if you hear elk bugle while you're walking, yeah. you don't let it. Do you start thinking about your elk hunt next year? I mean, you try to unattach from the thoughts, and so you just let them kind of come up and pay and fade away, because if you attach onto the thought and you follow that down, then just come back to your breathing. And for how long of a period do you try to do that for? Uh, I mean, I try to do it for 35 breaths, which takes me about 10 minutes. Okay. So I'm, I'm also not very good at meditation. I've just done it a lot poorly. And so... <laughs> I think I've been doing it probably this, over a decade. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds weird, okay? Uh, so don't, don't take offense. But uh, when you're walking, doing the walking meditation, do you close your eyes? No. So you leave your eyes open? Yeah, because otherwise, you know, you might run into something and that breaks your concentration. Do you... Do you blink slower? Like, I mean, I, I don't. I just kind of... I know that's funny, but like on the elliptical, like I'm like, all right, I can't close my... I can close my eyes for a minute, but then I start to lose my balance. Mm. I mean, if I'm jogging, I try to, you know, I can't breathe slow, but I turn off my earbuds and just kind of run and listen to the sound of the wind going past and just try to feel yourself in motion. Were you able to... Uh, do walking meditation when you lost your uh, staff? Uh, yeah, but I was mostly just mad about <laughs> losing that staff. Because did that tick of the staff going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it, that help with the meditation? Yeah, yeah, it did. It felt uh, something was missing, and I definitely noticed the loss. So, what do you get out of this meditation when you're doing this? Um, it's easier to focus throughout the rest of your day, and also you just feel a little better like I definitely notice uh on days when I don't meditate the difference of then on days when I do it's a little more peaceful a little more focused so do you work out as well uh yeah okay because like my meditation like my workouts that's what makes me feel good so when I miss my morning workout 
my day is just off. That's. But yeah. do you get a, do you like a, get into a meditation men, mental state when you're working out? Mm, no, I don't. I, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, you're going through uh, a rigorous workout that you're you're pushing your your limits and. Because I think that I've been in that state on accident a lot. Like I used to be a heavy skier. Mm. And people talk about being in the zone. Yeah, like, the flow like state. The flow state, right? Yeah. Is that flow state a form of meditation, do you think? I think it's a level you can reach. I mean, meditation itself, and again, like I'm not an expert, uh, but for me, meditation itself is getting to that flow state. Um, and for me, like if I'm trying to breathe in and out, it's trying to breathe silently and just kind of like focus on just passively letting the breath come in and out. And then that frees up my ears to hear more and to focus on more because I'm not just hearing like, yeah. But uh, getting in the flow state, I think, uh, I think that's meditation. I think it's more of a mental plane that you can reach through meditation, but you can also reach other ways. Did you find yourself in the flow state a lot on your through hikes? Um, sometimes. It definitely was a challenge. And did you stumble into it? Yeah. I mean, one time, like a couple of times on Shikoku and much less on the PCT because I wasn't meditating as much. um, Like the world changed. And the only way I can describe it is, uh, have you guys done mushrooms or hallucinogens? No, but um, uh, I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. And recently he had an expert on mushrooms on there. And... uh, so mushrooms and LSD, uh, you know, they can screw up your perception, like the world's flowy and weird and jumbly, mm-hmm. but it can also snap your attention into seeing what's around you more and increasing your focus. So like uh, the way I try to describe it is like, to me, like there's the microphone in front of me, my book, Finding Monks and Burning Mountains, available on Amazon. Uh, your microphone, you, the two deer fighting in the background. And all of these are in my field of vision, but I can only give attention right now to you. And the rest of it is kind of fuzzy and on the side. <coughs> but on the pilgrimage, when I'd snap into that state, or sometimes on hallucinogens, all of this is an equal measure of focus. So you're not just seeing stuff, you're existing within the world around you. Interesting. And you are able to take in more attention. But aren't things incredibly magnified? No. The, I mean, because the times that I've been around somebody that was like on mushrooms, it, uh, like one guy was like tapping on the wall and he thought like little men were coming to get him. Yeah, it's not like every time, and it depends on the person, and it depends on, like, the trip and everything else. So, like, I mean, when I, uh, when I did acid for the first time, like, it was a, you know, there was a period of, like, the ground moving and a period of, like, everything melty. And then I was sitting by a stream, and everything snapped into a greater focus. And instead of, like, being you know, like seeing things differently, suddenly everything was in a greater focus and my thoughts were quiet. So I kind of snapped into a greater perception of the world around me. And the only other time that I can really relate to that is times on the Pacific Crest or on the uh, Shikoku pilgrimage when I had that same snap of attention and to where instead of me observing the world, I was 
a part of it, existing within it without the filter of my own perception of it. If that makes sense. Well, I totally still makes don't sense. have to well, it, no, it's, it's interesting. It 100% makes sense to me, at least. Uh, uh, when did you do these? Uh, when did you do mushrooms and LSD? I choose not to answer that. Was it, was it need a job. Okay. All right. Well, can uh, you t- let's can let's you say, say in it, adulthood. Okay. So was it during, uh, during your, your uh, 24 to 30? Like, was it dur- during the, any of these uh, trips? Um, did you go on trips during your trips? No, I did not. <laughs> okay. uh, I, hard to find it on there. Like, you can't find, like, drugs in Japan are pretty hard to find. Yeah. And I don't really seek them out. If I'm on a journey, I'm just, like, there. Um, so when you've done, uh, mushrooms and LSD, but mostly mushrooms, uh, did you, uh, have a sense of a sound of like rhythm or sound like a hum? Uh, no, not really. Um, who's the big, Unless I was by power lines. Who's the big mushroom LSD guy from the 70s, 60s, 70s? Oh, uh, Timothy Leary. No. Close. He has a uh, movie. He did. He went to uh, Central America and did uh, ayahuasca. I, he only did ayahuasca, but he did a lot of mushrooms and DMT at the same time. Hmm. And then he talks about uh, hearing a, a hum. Hmm. It was like a, it was like a frequency of the of the universe or frequency of the place he was at, and how he could start to to mimic that frequency. Huh. When he was on, it was just a fascinating documentary. So. For me, it's it hasn't been a hum; it's actually been a silence. And uh, I found when I was at uh, in Ashland, Oregon, uh, at that hot springs, you mm-hmm. know, there was uh, a sign that said, "Very uh, easy to find mushrooms in Ashland, Oregon." Yes, it's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> but, at the uh, Shakespeare Festival, mm-hmm, which is going, which goes on all year. I didn't know; <laughs> like they just do Shakespeare there all the time. Um, but I found a uh, sign at the hot springs that said, uh, God exists in everlasting silence. And to me, like, if I've gone to uh, places like, I'd say, Rainier and Hel- Mount St. Helens and Crater Lake and uh, parts of Jerusalem, I feel that there's this charismatic silence that exists once you get there. Places that have either had a huge cataclysmic event or places that have had the attention and intentions of people put into it, like the Western Wall in Israel. Uh, And there's a charismatic, profound silence that seems to exist there that you can... Feel. Yeah, you can feel that silence. And that, I think, is God, if there is a God. Um, How come in your book uh, you always say, thank the gods? uh, Because I don't believe in a monotheistic God. Um, So in uh, Jewish mysticism, there's this idea of the ultimate God who is beyond our knowing. It's the concealed of the concealed, uh, Ein Sof, which literally means without end. And it's so unknowable that to create the world, God had to differentiate himself. And through these differentiations called Sefi wrote, the world came into existence. And so to reach back to God, uh, you have to go back through the Sefi wrote, learn everything, and then forget all that you know, all of the differentiation. And that takes you back into 
without end, the eternal. So for me, I say thank the gods because I don't want to subscribe to this idea of one thing. I want to subscribe to this idea of the multiple, multiple gods and multiple ideas because I think they all come from the same thing, but also just because I like multi, I like religions with gods. And did your, did, did it, that, it that, makes for a more interesting world. Did that philosophy came out of uh, the, the Jewish mysticism, but did it also come uh, from being, uh, going through the temples on your, yeah, part I just, of it too? Cause they're, they have different gods yeah, and different things, right? I just think it like, to me, this is all made up. Like God, everything is a function of human imagination. And on the one, I do partially believe that there may be a higher power or something that connects us all. You know, whether you look at the, the theory, uh, the string theory or the grand unification theory that mm-hmm. everything is made of one thing and we're still looking for what that is. Or, you know, it could be that this is just an illusion that Stars. human brains made up. And that, you know, when we die, it's just blackness forever. And that's what the world is. You know, it's just little sparks of life popping up and then, you know, popping out. Why would we be any different than any other animal? So for me, uh, some of religion and some of my religious beliefs is there's something that I believe. But at the same time, I acknowledge that they could all be an illusion. So it's just more fun to have them. Like, it's more fun for me to believe in the fates and to believe in, believe in gods and believe in these things that control the world. Not because, I, not because it affects how I behave, but more just because I really kind of like that fiction. And I'd like to live in that fiction, acknowledging it, because it makes a more interesting world. Does it, does it give you hope? Um, no. No, it's just sort of for me to entertain, to entertain myself in this world, which again, I'm starting to see more of as a dream. Well, it's almost like having uh, glasses on, like seeing the wor- world through glasses. Mm-hmm. You know, I went through a really intense uh, multiverse phase mm. um, last summer, and it got to the point where I was in the bathroom at work. And I could not stop thinking about this. I was, I, I was having insomnia, so I was watching these documentaries yeah. on multiverses, and then I was going deep on documentaries, mm. like finding, you know. And, and uh, yeah, the well, moment what, I... What was alternate universe Cody doing at that time, though? Yeah, so, that, so I had a snap out of it. I had, a, I had to have a timeout on researching multiverses because I was in the bathroom, and I was washing my hands, and I pulled a paper towel out of the dispenser, and I said, in another universe, there's a Cody that stops pulling paper towels out. So if I pull another paper towel out, then I've just split myself off. And there's another version of me because there was a decision that somebody else, that another Cody in a different universe didn't make. And I got wrapped up into this thought. It was almost kind of like a like an out-of-body experience. Mm. And I snapped out of it, and I had like 12 towels in my hand. And somebody walked <laughs> in the bathroom. I'm like, what am I doing? Are you sure you haven't done mushrooms? Like, I've just I think fried my brain. That's I was like, I was like, somebody <laughs> spiked his lunch yeah, that I think, day. No, I think it was is that I was under a tremendous amount of stress uh, at my job, oh. and a lot of it was self-induced. But I was under so much stress that I was getting to that wall of a nervous breakdown, and that multiverse theory was just like what you said. It was kind of an entertaining way to look at life and my decisions and what I'm making. And that, that 
it, a lot of things started making sense. And in a weird way, it was kind of a proof of God to me, mm. right? That it's impossible for our brains to understand a, d- a dimension without time, which is eternity. Yeah. Right. You can't comprehend it. Our brains cannot comprehend life without time, just like a fish can't comprehend life without water. Yeah. Time takes a second, but it's a second that lasts forever. Yeah. Well, and if you don't have time, what else don't you have? Right. How can we all get to heaven when we die if there's no time? Wouldn't we all just show up there at the same instant? Ooh. Right. So like there's it. these thoughts that this was going, my mind was going down, and the multiverse theory started to be proof of heaven or proof of God or some greater power. But uh, I had to take a time out from it. I was getting too deep. <laughs> I was getting too deep. Ryan was starting to worry about me a little bit. He's like, dude, but you got to stop like, talking about it. Yeah, and that's, that's why I kind of am like, you know, these are just, the, the, we understand the world through stories. We understand history through stories. Everything is narrative because it's the only way to pick through all of the enormous details and to put it into something that you can tell someone else. And that you can understand. Yeah, and that's understandable. So I feel like there's a detriment to that in that we tend to, because we love stories, we love heroes, and then we lose the ability to see people as people. Say that again. We lose the ability, because we love heroes, we lose the ability to see people as people. We lose the ability to see people as heroes and people as monsters and we see peop- we see these heroes and these evil people in history. You know, everyone talks about Hitler. No one talks about Goebbels. No one talks about uh, Himmler. No one talks about all of the Nazis that helped Hitler, helped move his ideas ahead. No one talks about the right-wing politicians who said, you know what, we think this guy's crazy, but he has the populist touch, and if he and if we put in, install him as chancellor, we can control him, but it'll help our power. No one talks about it because we don't want to understand the vastness of what allowed it to happen. We want a villain, and we want a villain to be defeated, and we want that to be the end of it. You know, I love hearing you talk, some, because some of the things you've said, you say, you know, we and everything, and I love that I am not in that category. You know, like when you what you just said with the whole the whole World War II and Hitler, because I watch all those documentaries, the World War II and color and all that. Yeah, it's, it's great. But you're absolutely right, and a lot of it's because people don't take the time to be educated and and show interest in it. But I yeah. understand what you're saying. Yeah, but we want we want simplicity. Mm-hmm. We want heroes and we want villains. And then when our heroes are flawed, we want them to be destroyed because we feel betrayed. And I think that it's a detriment that we can only see things in stories because the stories, you know, avoid things that aren't things that aren't integral to the plot we cut out. And so no one watches, uh, you know, no one watches the movie Gandhi and then takes time out to be like, how many times did he hit his wife? You know, why was he sleeping with underage girls? Not sexually. That wasn't in the movie. Yeah, exactly. People don't know that about Gandhi because it wasn't in the story. And no one takes the time to really read up and find the other stuff. Did because stuff we just go on the like story. before, like when he was younger? No, it was going on while he was doing it, while he was freeing, while a man not eating, nonviolently protesting, freed his entire country from the boot of British imperialism. That is amazing. 
that is something that is laudable and that is something that should be focused on. But he was not a saint. No heroes are saints. Well, we're all human. Exactly. We're not perfect. Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm saying. Ultimately, <clears throat> we look at all this stuff and we want to have heroes, but we don't recognize that they're just people and that everyone's flawed and that no one really knows what they're doing, but we're all, that some people really honestly give it their best shot and we don't laud people for giving it their best shot. We laud people for when we can market and say, you are successful. You made it. You did this thing, but we don't laud people for trying. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, kind of like that movie, Seven Years in Tibet. You know, and there's, it's, it's weird, and, and uh, uh, Steve Jobs talks about this a little bit, about how um, in order to achieve a high level of success, how are we doing on time, Michelle? Okay, we're good. You just All tell right. us to end. I mean, how long yeah. have we been going? A We've couple been hours? going a while. Uh, about an hour. About an hour? Good. Okay. Uh, anyway. Uh, but he talks about... Hour and a half. He talks about... Um, uh, you, in order to achieve a high level of success, you have to have a tremendous amount of passion. And if you kind of have to be an idiot, you kind of have to be stupid and a glutton for punishment to achieve that high level of passion. Otherwise, why would you do it? Because it's going to be so painful. And, and what he says about being painful is the sacrifices you're going to make. Steve Jobs is one of the greatest uh, technological and a revolution, uh, revolutionary uh, people of our times. He's kind of like the uh, 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 Rockefeller of our times, right? Yeah. But he had different uh, children with different wives, and he disowned most of his whole family and gave up all of that for his dream of, of, of what he was doing. Yeah, and he was also big on himself. He's big on himself, but you, ha- you know, it was fu- it's just so funny, Paul, because I was kind of having this talk with my wife the other night. In order to achieve a certain level, you're going to have to stomp on people. You're going to have to neglect things in your life. Yeah, right? it's like uh, the historical statement, great men are always bad men. And, and your, your story about Gandhi is, is just like the profound proof of that. Because you hear here you almost have, always bad men. Yeah, here you have one of the most profound people in the world's history, Gandhi, that hit his wife and slept around with other. Uh, yeah. Again, he slept next to younger women. Uh, he, I believe, had taken a vow of celibacy. So, well, let's just say he hit and, his and wife. look that up. I didn't like, like that's stuff I know, but not something I read recently to reconfirm. But you're, you know, it's like uh, yeah, he was like, he was bad to his wife. It's like, if God exists, then how come uh, kids get cancer, right? Because the world's full of sin. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of is a similar thing with, with that analogy you gave of Gandhi, of Gandhi did all this, but, but he's yeah. still a man. Yeah, or God doesn't care, either one. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, I think that's a great place to uh, uh, start to conclude here. So we don't know what you're doing for the next six years of your life. At 24, you're able to come up with seven mo- uh, mon- monumental goals. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think of doing is, like, I should probably go to EMT school because I've been talking about that forever, and I'd like to ride a horse across Mongolia. <sighs> Do you, have you done a lot of research on Genghis Khan? Uh, I've listened to the Hardcore History podcast on Genghis Khan, yeah, which too. is the best one. It's really good. Oh, it's so good. So you're going to ride a horse across Mongolia. That will, that will probably happen. Well, if I was uh, Cody when I was 24, 
probably could have been talked into doing that with you. <laughs> <laughs> but not now. No, it sounds like but, your kid will be fine. You're the yeah, problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm planning a 10-day trip to Patagonia in 2018, and it's nice. like it's taking, a year, it's taking a year and a half of planning and organizing to make 10 days. So uh, I can't imagine. I mean, doing the Pacific Coast Trail and these things that we've met, people we've met do it, it's just incredible to me. Just everybody's at a different place, though, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, so... But yeah, one one last thing. So Emerson is a good friend of mine, and he uh, uh, last spring decided that he had had it. He's forty, early forties, forty, forty-one. He was unhappy with his job. He was working for the county. Um, didn't have any close family, uh, and uh, he's just like, "What am I doing?" So he sold all of his belongings, sold his house, quit his job, bought an RV, and hit the road. And his goal was 10 years. And he'd make money however he needed to along the way, tending bar, bouncing bars, or whatever. And I remember before he left, uh, we were sitting in my living room, and I said, I'm really jealous and envious of you, like that you have the freedom where you can just say, screw everything, give everyone the middle of the finger, pull out and go do this adventure. And he said, I'm really jealous of you, that you have your wife, your kid, your career. He's like, uh, it's easy to be jealous of each other. Yeah, it's like a modest mouse. Everybody's life is more interesting because they're not mine. Yeah. Grass is greener. Yep. No, it's, uh, that's what I tell people who are like, oh, my God, like, you've done all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, you have a job you like. How do you do that? I have no clue how to do that. You have, you know, you've been in a steady relationship for five years and married someone. How do you do that? How do you have kids? How do you, like, it's just I don't have... There's certain stuff I don't have, and instead I double down on the stuff that I was good at and said, okay, I have this life. I can spend my time being not great at one thing, or I can go off and just try to be great at things and live this life that, in the end, like, if I, you know, Kenahara, if I die soon, not tomorrow, not today. Which means knock on wood, by the way. Kenahara, no evil eye, but yeah, basically the same, knock on wood. Uh, If I, you know, if I pass... And I have the chance to have a last thought. I'm just going to be like, this was the craziest, coolest thing. I cannot believe I got to be alive. This was amazing. And I don't think I would have thought that 10 years ago. I think 10, well, I'm 35. Yeah, I think 10 years ago, I was still dealing with a lot of depression and dealing with a lot of complacency and uncertainty in my life. And I feel like I did it. You know, I feel like to me, to wrap it all up, that's my success is that I can look back in my life and be like, I did it. I really lived a full human life. Well, accomplishing something that has been important to you is is awesome. And, and <clears throat> I'm definitely going to take, I'm going to listen back to this podcast and I know there's going to be little things I'm going to do in my life and my decision making based off our conversation today. I'm sure other people will too. So, um, uh, thank you for coming on and thank you for being open. I don't know that I knew that this, that's the direction this conversation is going to go, but I think it was awesome. Oh, uh, buy my book, please. Uh, yeah, well, don't worry. I'm going to plug your book right now. Thank you. Uh, 
uh, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains um, on Amazon. Yep. Also, in print and ebook and audiobook. In the audiobook. Uh, and I got to be honest with you. Uh, I read a first chapter and then I'm like, I don't have time. So I downloaded the audiobook okay. and I listened to the whole thing. Oh, God. <laughs> and you had to listen to eight hours of You me. narrate your own <laughs> audiobook, which is awesome. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it, it, I think it added a lot to it. Um, because there are a lot of words, Japanese words in here that I cannot pronounce. And so hearing you do it in your own language, I thought was really cool. Um, but yeah, there it is. It's on uh, Amazon. Go support him. Um, you are, you do have an entrepreneurial spirit because you put this book out yourself, mm-hmm. correct? Using yep. Kickstarter. Yep. Uh, which... Uh, is a very entrepreneurial thing to do. I got it right here, right? Yep. Kickstarter fighting, but this is the second tab. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was... So you just threw this on here, and you said, this is my journey, and I want to write a book and put a book out about it, right? Yeah, and uh, for just a final note, well, two final notes. Number one, I'm also uh, blogging my uh, Pacific Crest Trail Hike on medium.com. Just search for my name, Paul Barak, B-A-R-A-C-H. And number two... Uh, if anyone's planning on writing a book, do it. It will suck until you can hold it in your hands, and then it's one of the greatest feelings on earth. It's awesome. It Butterflies, t- meadows, and what? What was that analogy? Say that one more time. Oh yeah, mountains. Uh, yeah. The tree trunks turned into meadows. The tree branches turned into mountains, and the, all the mosquitoes became butterflies. Yeah, I think there's a book right there. Beautiful. Yeah, Paul, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you can come on sometime in the future. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I live, I'm back in Seattle, so yeah. You're back in Seattle now? Yeah, I'd love to be on again. I'll look you up when I come up there. All right. Maybe we can go to a comedy club. That sounds good. You can, you can go up. I think I'm done. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to go up. <laughs> All right. Dude. All right, goodbye, All right. everybody. Thanks. Goodbye, See you everyone. next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.